Today, we're going to continue in our series entitled Make It Count. For those of you who may have not been with us uh, throughout this short journey so far, the series we're doing is based on the book of Philippians. And uh, what we've been focusing on is that Paul was uh, uh, writing Philippians from a prison in Rome. And uh, we've noted that the overriding theme of Philippians is joy, which is in many ways ironic since Paul is imprisoned, facing hardship, possible death even, when he's writing this letter. But of interest to us as we explore is the fact that Paul's message, overriding message as he writes this letter is this. If we are willing to adopt a make it count attitude in our relationship with Jesus, we will experience joy when life does not turn out as we had planned. And so in week one, when we looked at the first passage, we said a make it count approach to faith creates authentic community. Our second week, we said a make it count approach to faith helps us to gain a different perspective on things. Our third week, which was the last time, we said a make it count approach to faith calls for a context of unity. Today, we're going to be considering how a make it count approach to faith requires humility, requires humility. Now, this Sunday is wedged in a very important part of the winter calendar. Just this week or so was Groundhog Day. And Wyerton Willie showed us scientifically that spring was coming early. I'm holding him to that. This coming Thursday, of course, is Valentine's Day. And so I want to share a short clip with you this morning, and I think it sort of aligns all the stars for us today because the clip is from the movie Groundhog Day. It deals with the issue of a, the perfect man, and it's all within the context of humility. Who is your perfect guy? Well, first of all, he's too humble to know he's perfect. That's me. He's intelligent, supportive, funny. Intelligent, supportive, funny. Me, me, me. He's romantic and courageous. Me also. <sighs> he's kind, sensitive, and gentle. He's not afraid to cry in front of me. This is a man we're talking about, right? He likes animals and children, and he'll change poopy diapers. Oh, and he plays an instrument, and he loves his mother. I am really close on this one. Genuine, authentic humility is a challenge for many of us, if we are to be honest. In fact, it may even be a challenge for most of us. But humility is critically important for a make-it-count approach of faith to thrive in our lives. Now, Paul begins this next section of the letter to the Philippians with a call to humility. And he says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that, this is a big ask. It's a big ask. It's a, this is a significant challenge. I mean, can you imagine the impact of being able to live like this? The impact that it would have on our marriages. Imagine if we live this, what our marriages could look like. If we lived like this, what our relationship with our children would look like, how they would act. It, can you imagine what our families would be like? Can you imagine what it would be like when you showed up at work to take on your role for the day? Can you imagine what every church could look like? Can you imagine what your neighborhood would look like if only this, these few words that Paul has put in front of us here, this challenge, this big ask, this, this overwhelming significant challenge, can you imagine how different this world could be if we could live that, if we could live that? In fact, this challenge is so significant. Where would we even know? How would we even know where to begin? What does this kind of true humility even look like? When have we ever seen it? What does it even look like? Well, Paul knows that that's an important next step in asking for something so significant. And so he uses the greatest example of humility there is. Jesus Christ. And so Paul begins to paint a picture for us in this next section of the letter to the Philippians, a picture of who Jesus is, a picture of what Jesus has accomplished, what he has done. And so as we look at this this morning, our goal is for us to consider Jesus' humility, for us to be reminded of God's exaltation of Jesus in response to this incredible display of humility. And then Paul points to us and how we should respond to both of these things. And so earlier in the service, our scripture for today uh, was read. And so if you have your Bible, you can keep it. I'm not going to reread it, but you can follow along Philippians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 3 to 18. The first thing I want us to look at today is Jesus' response. Verses 6 to 11 of the passage that was read today, these verses are actually uh, a very early hymn in the Christian church. Now, it's unlikely that Paul is composing this hymn here. He was a lot of things. I'm not sure he was a songwriter. It's more likely that he's quoting something that already exists that they're familiar with, and he's using it as a teaching tool. It is potentially one of the most complicated yet significant theological writings in Scripture. Now, Paul's purpose in writing this and including this in his letter is to encourage the Philippian believers to live lives of humility. And so he challenges them that their attitude, their mindset should be the same as the attitude or mindset of Jesus. The word attitude means really your way of thinking. 
your way of thinking. Your way of thinking should be the way of thinking of Jesus. And so if Jesus humbled himself in order to accomplish God's purpose, then Paul is saying, then they should and we should also model Jesus and demonstrate humility in our own lives. And so Paul provides a significant demonstration of what the humility of Jesus looks like. Now, let me tell you, if we were to bring out the volumes of books that are written on these verses, if I were to unpack this and to spend time in it, we could be here for weeks and still not even get our heads around everything that Paul is saying. So, obviously, this is not going to be a really deep dive this morning for our our purposes. But he is sharing some significant things that we need to understand. The first is he wants us to understand that Jesus is sovereign. And in verse 6, Paul begins with Jesus' existence before coming to earth, before what we call the incarnation, that moment where God took on flesh, in simplest terms, the Christmas story. And he says that Jesus was in very nature God. Now, Paul's point simply here is that Jesus is God. Jesus is a part of the Godhead. He's a member of the Trinity. You have God the Father, you have God the Son, and you have God the Holy Spirit. You have the three in one, and that's another three-month teaching that we would leave still not understanding, but we accept it by faith. Jesus is not just a God. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a good person in history that history acknowledges and admires. Jesus is God. And that's what Paul is trying to drive home. That prior to coming to earth, prior to the incarnation, in, prior to becoming Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus already possessed equality with the Father. And Paul says, yet he resolved not to cling to it. Now, that doesn't mean that he, you know, he didn't stop being God when he took on flesh at the incarnation. He didn't become a, what we call a demigod from, you know, mythology where he was part God and part man because both came together. That's not what it's saying. As hard as it is to understand, what Paul's trying to help us see here is that Jesus is 100% God, and then he becomes 100% man while being 100% God. One is not compromised by the other, but both exist simultaneous. Now, I know that this is sometimes difficult to understand and to get our heads around, and I, I don't want us to get too bogged down here, but I want us to see the point that Paul is trying to make, and his point is this. Jesus is God. Jesus is sovereign and never ceases to be God and never ceases to be sovereign. And so because of his love for us, because of our need for salvation that only he could provide for us, he chose not to cling to the sovereignty to the point of avoiding the humanity, but instead he humbled himself. Now, this theology is very important because there's a lot of religions around us in this culture. There are a lot of cults that recognize Jesus, but not as God. I may have shared with you before, I remember one day answering my door, and there was, you know, two people at my door, two Jehovah's Witnesses. 
and they were presenting me with my very own gift of my own Bible. They, were, they had a Bible for me. And so I just was listening for a while, and they said, we'd like you to have this Bible. And I said, oh, it's beautiful. Thank you. And, and, and I, I thumbed over to John chapter 1, and I looked at it, and I said, there's a terrible error in here. And they said, what do you mean? I said, well, in John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and your Bible says the Word was a God. But the Greek language context doesn't allow for the word a. It's declaring that he's God. They're looking at me like, my God, who is this? What have I done? And so we didn't get very far in the conversation because there are many who acknowledge Jesus. That's my point. There are many world religions that recognize Jesus. They, there are cults that recognize Jesus. What makes them a cult is, is not that they hide in a little building in the middle of Texas and then eventually burn it down. What, what a definition of a cult is someone who denies the deity of Jesus. And there are cults there are, that we see as churches and Christian organizations. They are not. They are cults because they deny that Jesus is God. And so we're surrounded by people who are okay with Jesus. He's a nice guy. He did stuff in history. He's a prophet. He's, you know, he, he, he's a representative of God. No, Paul is not saying that. Paul is saying he's sovereign. He's God. Secondly, Paul says... He's a servant. In verse 7, Paul's description of Jesus moves to his incarnate state, his human condition. And he says, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. The word taking here doesn't mean to make an exchange, that, that you give me this and I give you that, and okay, we've made a trade. That's not what it means. It means to add to. In taking, he kept what he originally was and then added on to that. So Jesus didn't exchange his deity for humanity. He added humanity to his deity. He became a part of humanity. And what's really important to understand, and I'm surprised at how many people actually think this, they think that when Jesus went back to the Father, that he went back to the way he was before he came. That's not true. That when Jesus took on humanity, he took on humanity for eternity. He's still the lamb who bears the wounds as he sits on the right hand of the Father. Jesus became a man while he was at the same time God. And because of this, like other men, but unlike other men, Jesus was sinless. And so most religions and most faiths are centered around mankind searching for God. Mankind trying to appease the gods or a god. Mankind maybe even seeking to rise to the level of their god. But not Christianity. Jesus' humility is the strength of Christianity. And Paul wants us to see that. Thirdly, Paul paints Jesus as our Savior. In verse 8, Paul continues with this theme. 
Not only did Jesus humble himself by taking on the form of of a man, of a servant, he humbled himself to the point, Paul says, of death on the cross. He was committed to the Father's plan, even to the extreme, to the end. The only way that mankind, you and I, could be forgiven of our sins, the only way we could be restored to relationship with God was through the sacrificial death of Jesus. And so he died a disgraceful death by crucifixion. We can't even get our heads around crucifixion. We know it was bad. And when we see the plays and we watch the movies, it's, we say, oh, that's disgusting. That's so hard and it's sad. But we can't really, unless you've really lived it and seen it, you really wouldn't understand it in the culture, in the context of the day. That the cross was the cruelest form of capital punishment in its day. The Phoenicians and the Persians practiced it rampantly, and later on, as the Romans spread their empire, they adopted it too. But it was so horrific that the Romans had a law that their citizens could never be crucified. Despite how much they did, how bad they they, they behaved, crucifixion could not be exercised on a Roman citizen. Jews considered crucifixion to be a curse. It was reserved for slaves and criminals. Yet the sinless Son of God... The one who was God. The sinless one took on the sin of all mankind from all time upon himself. Our sin included. All the sin we created this week. All the sin we we created today. All the sin we acted on in the past. All the sin we will likely act on in the future. Included died in our place, paid the price. Why? Not because we deserve it. If Jesus had not come in the incarnation, if he had not humbled himself, if he had not taken our sin upon himself and died on the cross, we would never know what it means to be restored to relationship with God. We would not be here today. The provision for us to be forgiven for our sins has been provided by Jesus' shed blood on the cross. That's what Paul wants us to see. And when we accept that provision and when we surrender our lives to his lordship, our sins are forgiven. Our relationship with God is restored. This is how Jesus has responded to us. This is how he's responded to our sinfulness and our brokenness. It was his humility that made salvation possible. He could not be our savior without being our servant. He put others above his own interest. He valued others above himself. And so when Paul writes to us and says, put others above yourself, value others, and we read the story of Jesus, then there's a hope that we know what that might look like and say, yeah, I can put others above myself. I have a model that I can look to. I could never live up to that, but it points me in the direction of how to fulfill such a significant ask in my life. I can value others if I adopt the humility that has been modeled for me from the life of Jesus that benefits. You see, that's the thing. That's the big thing, Jesus, to ask us to do that for someone else. But the reality is, it's when what's been done for us. All of us have been the recipients of this. And he's asking us to do the same for others.
Secondly, God's response. In the previous three verses, we see what we'll call descending action. He was God, he became flesh, and then he became a servant and died. Descending action. Jesus is God. Jesus, God, humbles himself by becoming a man, then ultimately humbles himself, taking on the sin of humanity and dying. But when we get to verse 9, there's a change in the passage. And we see what we're going to call an ascending action. It's kind of like on that dreaded roller coaster where you're barreling down that steep incline. And all of a sudden, when you reach the bottom, it turns and you begin to go back up. That's what's happening here in the text. Because the humbled one is now being exalted once again. The focus shifts from what Jesus did to God's response to what Jesus did. And Paul says, Jesus is exalted. As a result of his death, as a result of his humiliation on the cross, Paul tells us that God has exalted Jesus to the highest place. Unlike in the previous section, this is not a step-by-step ascension or progression. It's one significant step from the very bottom to the very top. In fact, the word exalted here that's used in this passage is only used in this verse, in this place, in the entire New Testament. And it literally means super exalted. I think it's kind of like when you go through the McDonald's drive-thru and they ask you if you want to supersize your fries, right? Or your drink, right? It's like it's beyond normal. It's probably beyond what any human consumption should be. Paul is saying he super exalted him. Now, Paul's use of this word is tied to the resurrection of Jesus. Because not only did Jesus die for the sins of all humanity, but Jesus rose from the dead on the third day. God raised Jesus from the dead. And so Jesus' resurrection conquered sin and the grave for all time. We know that. And Jesus' resurrection reminds us that we too will conquer sin and the grave ultimately. Because he lives, Jesus said, because I live, you too will live. All that Jesus laid aside to come in the incarnation and to die for all of us was restored to him. And now he reigns supreme over heaven and earth. And I love this. It says, and God gave him the name that is above every other name. Names are very important in the Bible. Names not only distinguish one person from another. I signed up for something yesterday. I got an email later in the, in the day. Dear Wilson and Shannon, dear Lord, not only did my parents call me by my second name, but they gave me a girl name as the second name, and it just makes life so complicated. Just call me something simple and call me by that name, right? Names were important. They didn't just distinguish who was who, but a person's name was a reflection of their character and their spiritual position. When God came to Abram, his name meant high father. 
Because he was. In his clan, he was old already. He was a patriarch in his clan, even though he didn't have children. He was an esteemed leader and elder. He was Abram. But God made a promise to him in his old age and said, listen, you are going to be a father of multitudes, and so we're going to call you Abraham, which means father of multitudes. Jacob spent a lifetime deceiving, manipulating, controlling, putting himself first, trying to get ahead, trying to, at at whatever cost, at whoever's expense, it didn't matter. He was a lying, cheating manipulator, deceiver. But after a long wrestling match with God and a limp to walk with for the rest of his life, God said, your name is now Israel. You're no longer known as deceiver. You're now known as one who prevailed with God. Saul of Tarsus on the Damascus road. Nice name, Saul. It's a regal name. In Jewish context, yes, we named our son after one of our previous kings. Maybe you should read the rest of the story before you name your son after him, but nonetheless, it's a regal name. It's a kingly name. But when he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, Saul, who was regal, became known as Paul, which means humble, because God had changed his life in his encounter with Jesus. Because Jesus humbled himself in the incarnation and through his death on the cross, God exalted him and gave him a name above all other names. Name is not just a title. He is distinguished from all others. He is above all. He is exalted over all. God's second response is that Jesus will be acknowledged. The one who was completely obedient, obedient even to the point of death, is now obeyed. The obedient one is now the obeyed one. And so because of this, Paul tells us that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Bending the knee to someone is to acknowledge devotion and allegiance to them. And it is to Jesus that we give our devotions. It is to Jesus that we give our life. Heaven bows, the scripture says here. Earth should bow. And Paul even says, and under the earth should bow. The demonic world, the world of evil and sin, Satan's domain, should bow, but it goes even further. What Paul is doing here is he's referencing creation in its totality because Jesus is exalted. Paul is telling us that the day is going to come when all creation will bow before him. Heaven will continue to bow before him. Earth and all of its inhabitants will bow before him. And even the devil himself and all of his followers will bow before him. And not only will they bow before Jesus someday, Paul takes it a step further and says, and they will also confess that he is Lord. God's intention is that all acknowledge Jesus as the only Lord and Savior. Sometimes within Christianity, people think we're arrogant because we take the words of Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's not arrogance, that's truth. That's truth. And some will acknowledge him now. 
And some will acknowledge him later. But this truth stands today that all will one day acknowledge him as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords, as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lamb who was slain and is now worthy. They will confess him as Lord. And so Paul's point to us is this. Jesus' humility declares that victory follows humiliation. And the enemy will one day be overcome. And so for us, while our efforts to consider others above ourselves seem sacrificial, seem difficult, even impossible at times, God elevates those who are willing to humble themselves. Finally, Paul outlines our response. He now switches to what believers should do in response to what Jesus did and what God has done in response to what Jesus did. What is it now left for us to do? He wants them to understand, those who read his letter, that salvation came at a great cost, even though it is free to them. And he wants them to embrace this salvation, and he wants them to model Jesus in their lives, in our lives. And so Paul walks through, and he first identifies the progression. He tells them, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, the biblical concept of salvation needs to be understood if we're going to appreciate what Paul is saying here. Because biblically, salvation is past, present, and future. We were saved when we acknowledged Jesus as the Lord and Savior of our lives. We are being saved as we daily, as He daily works within us, as the Spirit of God works within us, changing us into the likeness of Jesus. And we will ultimately be saved when Jesus returns and that work is complete in us and we become perfection in his sight. Salvation is a gift, pure and simple. We can't earn it. God offers it. He provides it when we come to him in humility to receive it. But once we receive salvation, there's an obligation for us to live a life of obedience to God. The goal of discipleship, Jesus said, we sometimes think we make disciples just to get people saved. Jesus said, no, teach them to obey. Teach them to obey. What Paul is referring to here, when he says work out your salvation, is this process of becoming more like Jesus. Now, the fancy word for that is sanctification. And so Paul challenges the Philippians to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Be obedient. Allow the Spirit to work in you. But do it with fear and trembling. This simply means do it with such an incredible respect for God that we reject sinful ways. That we honor the holiness of God. We sang this morning about God's holiness and God's reverence and His glory. And that's what Paul is calling us to here. Don't lose sight of that, that God is holy. God is holy, and it affects the way we live when we understand that the God that we are serving is a holy God. It helps us reject sinful ways. Paul says this is possible because God is working in you. God, by His Spirit, is working in you to make this possible. God partners with us. We're not left on our own to get it right, to become good people. 
The Holy Spirit comes to dwell in us when Christ becomes the Lord and Savior of our lives, and he works in us to help us become like Jesus. Paul says it's a progression. It's a process. Be a part of the process. Be engaged in it. Be involved in it. Make sure it's happening. Then he identifies the purpose for it. Why is it so important that the Holy Spirit work in our lives and we grow? Why does that even matter? Well, he says, listen, society around you is corrupt. It's depraved. And he says, my desire for you in the midst of this corrupt and depraved generation is that you would be blameless. Blameless means that there's no accusation that can be made about you. He says, make sure you live your life in such a way that no one could make an accusation about you. And he says, I want you to be pure. The word pure means there's nothing foreign in you, without fault. And he says, I want you to be that way because I don't want you to discredit the validity of your your witness. What Paul is addressing here, these are character issues. These are not actions, they're character issues. And these character traits are created by the work of the Spirit in us. And he says, my goal for you is that you would shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. Unlike the moon that simply reflects the light of the sun, the stars generate their own light. When when the gases in them are released and and the context ignites, there's, there's this light that's created. And what Paul is teaching us is this, as believers, Jesus dwells in us. He's in us. He's the light of the world. And when he's released from us as we live our daily lives, it creates light to the world around us. But starlight is lost when there's too much artificial light pollution. And those of us who live in the GTA can appreciate that. There's not a lot of nights we sit out in our backyard and say, what a beautiful starry night. I can see them all. We look up and say, I think all of that came from Buffalo. And all the light of the cities, you can't even see. But you get to the north, where you go to the mountains, and the sun goes down, and there's no other light around, and you just sit there in amazement of the beauty of creation and how brilliant and clear the stars are. The world is consumed with artificial light. All around us is artificial light. It's not the real light. It's not the true light. It's artificial light. Because only Jesus is the real light. And Paul is calling us to live in a way that our actions and our attitudes and our priorities do not hinder the world from seeing the true light. If our lives are filled with artificial light, they will never see the light of Jesus. And so our purpose as followers of Jesus is to shine the light of Jesus. Paul says, into a dark and broken world. And finally... There's a promise. Paul frames life in the here and now in the light of the day of Christ. The day when Jesus returns and our lives and our works will be inspected for reward. When we stand before him and long to hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. 
Paul had invested a great deal in this group of people. He's paid a significant price for the gospel. He's writing in chains in a prison. And his desire for them, all of them, is that his efforts and his sacrifices would not be in vain. He desires that their energetic activity, their labor, their toil will bring something good to them, to the kingdom of God as a whole. The prospect of standing before Jesus might come sooner than later for Paul because he's, in, in as far as he's concerned, it could happen any day that he meets Jesus. And he uses the metaphor of a drink offering that was poured out on the altar before God in the Old Testament as a sacrifice of honor to God. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm being poured out. My life is a sacrifice being poured out as worship before God. I'm in a, presently in a dangerous situation. It could easily end to my death. But just as Jesus gave his life for others, I'm willing to give my life for him. And so Paul is willing to sacrifice his life for the spiritual advancement of others. He's not bitter. He's rejoicing. He's found real joy in the humility of his circumstances, just like Jesus did. And he's saying to those he's writing to, you too, and us who are reading it today, you too need to find joy by humbling yourselves like Jesus so you can rejoice in Jesus. Because the truth is, life is hard. Life is painful. Life is filled with disappointments and heartaches. And sometimes we wonder if it's all worth it. You've probably had moments like I've had where you wonder if living for Jesus really makes that much of a difference. We've likely all had those moments sometime at a low point where we wonder if this is even all worth it. But I want to encourage us today. Don't lose sight of your hope. We walk by faith, not by sight. We focus on his promises. We focus on his past faithfulness. We focus on our future anticipation of what he's promised will be. And someday as followers of Jesus, we will be with him. And he says, when that happens, I'm going to wash all your tears away. When that happens, there's not going to be any more sickness. There's not going to be any more pain. There's not going to be any more heartache. There's not going to be any more death. If we are faithful, we'll not only impact our own lives and how we live and what our future in the kingdom of God will look like, but we also will impact others. There's a promise of a better day. And that promise should inspire us to joy, reaching out to others, living our lives with a make-it-count approach to faith demonstrated in humility. Paul says, in light of the model Jesus set before us, this is what's expected of you. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back. A make-it-count approach to faith does require humility. Because if we don't know humility, then a make-it-count approach to faith can't thrive. And so, folks, Jesus is our ultimate example of humility. He is the one 
we model. And if we're willing to adopt a make-it-count approach to our faith, it will impact us. It'll change us. It'll humble us. You know, as I was reading this week the words of Paul as he talked about the Spirit's work within us, I was reminded of what I believe are some of the saddest words in Scripture. Where there was a man who was chosen by God from birth to serve God, to serve his people, to be an instrument in the hand of God. That God anointed by his spirit to accomplish the task that he had called him to do. And because he was arrogant and couldn't surrender his life to what God had put him on the earth to do. He reached a moment in his life when in his arrogance, it says, he got up like all those times before and did not realize that the Spirit of God had left him. That's what happens when we lose sight of humility. That's what happens when we allow arrogance to reign in our lives. That's what happens when, like Samson, the truth of God is not enough for us, and we have to have our lives involved in things that God does not approve of. And in our arrogance, we live those things, while at the same time, we live the life of a pretend humility. And we wake up one day in our arrogance thinking, I'm going to go out today and live for God. And we don't even know how empty we are. It's a sad state of affairs. I pray to God that none of us ever find ourselves there. So how do we overcome it? Well, we do what Paul asked us to do. Yeah. We humble ourselves. We put others above ourselves. We put the king of God above, kingdom of God above our own interests. And we humble ourselves just as the one who saved us humbled himself. And we align our lives to obedience with him. Would you stand with me this morning? Prayer team, prayer team would you come and join me? And as our worship team, Tyler and our worship team lead us this morning, I just pray that the Holy Spirit in the quiet of this moment could just bring truth to our hearts. Truth to our hearts. Spirit of God, work within me. Humble me. Humble me so that I might be able to have the same attitude and mind as Christ.